This is WJCT News 89.9 in Jacksonville. Opinions expressed on the First Coast Week in Review are those of our panelists and do not necessarily reflect the views of WJCT News 89.9. Good morning. I'm Ann Schindler, and it's Friday, which means it's time for our First Coast Week in Review. Among our topics, downtown development hits some headwinds. Victims of state-sanctioned child abuse could finally receive compensation. The corruption trial of two former JEA executives gets underway, and Clay County kicks recycling to the curb. (laughs) To talk about all that and more, I'm joined by First Coast News morning anchor, Keitha Nelson. Good morning, Anne. Good morning, Keitha. David Bauerlein, Metro reporter with the Florida Times-Union. Good morning, Anne. Good morning, everybody. And University of North Florida journalism professor and my former colleague, Tricia Booker. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Thanks to all of you for being here. And David, as the reporter who has probably spent the most time of any of us sitting through downtown investment authority meetings. <laughs> God love you. Um, I'm going to start you with this one. So it's been a tough couple of weeks, couple of months for downtown development. Catch us up on some projects that have been uh, in trouble. So the two big uh, rendering projects were a couple of big high rises on the downtown waterfront. Uh, one would have been at the former site of the Jacksonville Landing, and the other one would have been at the site of the former Duval County Courthouse. So uh, they really appealing uh, renderings uh, would have brought high-rise sort of luxury apartment living to downtown, uh, but they are the latest of this growing scrapbook of a uh, city of renderings uh, that uh, just didn't get off the ground uh, beyond uh, the sort of initial planning and some economic incentives that were approved at some level for them. So those are those are going to the DIA says they're going to downtown investment authority says they've got other developers interested in those sites. Uh, they feel like they're going to be able to reload on those. Then there's a, it's gotten less attention, but there were uh, three historic buildings, including the 16-story independent life building that's near the federal courthouse. Uh, those are those uh, were uh, going to be done by a developer out of St. Augustine, and they got they did some work on them. One's the Ambassador Hotel, one's the iLife Tower, one's a smaller building. But if they had been done, that would have been a nice little pocket of development, take some historic abandoned buildings. Those uh, kind of ran into a lot of trouble, and so they are basically uh, going nowhere, and the city's going to terminate those development agreements. So those are real blows. And, of course, you have the Rise Doro apartment uh, fire, which was you know, beyond the control of the Downtown Investment Authority, but that was about to open. So that's, uh, that was a real blow to downtown in terms of a setback. Uh, so, you know, there's... There's always a certain amount of churn, and there are some projects. There's four or five projects that are still moving forward downtown that are going to add residential housing. But, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of, you can kind of say downtown is up, it's down. It's kind of simultaneously <laughs> up and down in this standpoint in terms of, you know, where is it going to go next? Is there going to be a, another wave of development coming, or is this kind of a, a fizzle out of this uh, era that we've had of pretty strong growth after over a few years. And I didn't even realize that the Ambassador Hotel was now on ice. I mean, that project is really fully underway. There's, you know, uh, construction happening. There was. The streets are blocked off because of the construction. I mean, so that really is like a mid-project halt. Really, it is. And, uh, you know, they really have not done a lot of construction in a while. But, you know, they did get to the point where they gutted the building. They were putting in new windows. Um, The iLife Tower, which is even more visible, 
uh, was at one time the tallest downtown building in uh, Jacksonville. It's, uh, you know, they did the same thing. They did a lot of work on it. Uh, you know, hard hats, crews out there, look like things are happening, but then they've run into a lot of uh, issues in terms of uh, contracts and liens and all sorts of other stuff. Yeah. Keith, as somebody who spent days working next to the that burning building, <laughs> um, you obviously saw firsthand yeah. that destruction. The, the first thing that came to mind when you mentioned downtown development was the rise door. Oh, downtown in general, it's like the, the little engine that could, we're all rooting for it, like, go, 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 you know, develop, <laughs> do better, and then... Then this happens and it feels like it's it's back to back. You know, we're seeing things happen. The rise door was really it was shocking. I remember walking into that um, that morning when the fire was going on. It was kind of like I drove into downtown. You know, I get in like at four o'clock in the morning. And I'm just I see this huge pummel of smoke. I'm like, well, what is what is going on there? And then you get closer and closer and you smell it. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, is the station on fire? Thank goodness it was, you know, it was not. But, yeah, um, the rise door is kind of like gosh, it, that was going to be nice, you know, a rooftop bar, you know, a more housing for people. Mind you, it was luxury housing, kind of pricey, but it, it would have been nice to have it there. And it's kind of like one thing after another with downtown development. We're just hopeful. And um, when we were talking about downtown development as well, I thought about the um, the Lift Every Voice and Sing Park. We know in the Little Villa area that it, it's two and a half years behind on construction now when you think about it. It has this big um, statue out there. It's been sitting there for quite some time, at least a uh, about a year or so and and nothing else if you talk to i spoke with lloyd washington who has been a big advocate for that project for more than a decade he's been trying to get this park um up and running and he's just like the construction costs the material they're just behind they're hoping hoping to have it open by the summer of, of this year we'll see you know if it actually happens and they do have that cool concrete you know saying lift every voice and yeah it's that, gorgeous yeah. i'm just hoping get everything else around it you know going We'll see. Uh, Trisha, so there's recent challenges like on the grand scale that we're talking about, but also small ones. Um, you know, Burrito Gallery closed after 18 years and it's one restaurant, but in a downtown landscape that doesn't have many, it actually is kind of a significant loss. No, oh, I think it's really indicative of um, the, the businesses that have hung in there just being like exhausted. Uh, it's it's baffling to me that we have been working on a, an improved downtown for I lost my mic um, for um, what 30 years now when I first came here we were looking at one vision um, and then 10 years later we seem to have a different vision and then there's another vision and it just seems like for such an area that is so uh, um, that is so anxious to have a thriving downtown why can't we make it happen it's a good question I mean I know Shad Khan said a couple years ago David that he saw the la the previous 10 years as just a lost decade, that, mm. that downtown had, if anything, declined in that period. Um, but he's also behind what surely would be a galvanizing project, the Four Seasons Hotel. I mean, it's hard to imagine that not being transformative, even if it's exclusive and the kind of thing that, that few of us could probably afford to go to. Yeah, it's such a signature project. It adds buzz to downtown for sure. It adds some, uh, in, in a sense of, yes, yeah, something that was said to be done has actually been done and that's a real accomplishment in terms of moving momentum forward you know i think downtown the way i view it is to be a cliche there's a tale of two downtowns there's a historic part of downtown which is what we think of downtown where you can park your car and walk for blocks on old-fashioned streets with sidewalks that part of downtown has really not taken off and that's uh, so if you go to that part of downtown, you don't really see a whole lot of changes. There's been some projects there, some development. But then if you go sort of to what they all consider downtown, which is the um, 
the um, Riverside Avenue area, that has taken off in leaps and bounds. That is a true before and after, and they consider that part of downtown. Brooklyn and Riverside. Brooklyn, Brooklyn and uh, where, the La is good, where the TE used to be. And there's parts of the South Bank that are doing that. So it's kind of, uh, you know, downtown will not be a successful downtown until that historic core of downtown is thriving. And you can go there seven days a week, all hours of the day and night, and find something to do. Uh, that's been the real struggle to date. And it gets so frustrating, though, because you go to places like Tampa, which a lot of people compare to, to Jacksonville, you're just like, why can't we just get there? Slowly but surely, I guess, in time. Yeah, but the resources, you know, they, mm-hmm. they do have to be allocated. There's not there's a limited amount of money that the city has to kind of incentivize development, and it spends a lot of money doing that already. But, you know, in terms of that that historic downtown area that David references, I mean, so much focus now is actually happening kind of around the sports complex area where your station is and, yeah. you know, where the Doro is, um, where the Four Seasons will be, you know, where the UF campus expansion will be, where the soccer stadium will be. I mean, so it's almost an entirely different downtown that the focus is, is you know, a lot of the Early focus on. is on. Yeah. Yeah. So this just doesn't seem to be a vision that kind of connects it all. I mean, I I don't think people who live in Riverside in Brooklyn would consider themselves living in downtown at all. Um, and I, I just it, it doesn't seem like there's a cohesive multi-year plan to say, OK, let's start from here and make it all blend together. I, I don't know. Just it's I, I'm sure it's frustrating to businesses like the Burrito Gallery that have been there for so long and are just like, well, we just can't make it work anymore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we're talking about the week's biggest headlines, and you can join our conversation by calling 904-549-2937. You can also email firstcoastconnect at wjct.org, and you can watch our program live stream now on Facebook and the WJCT YouTube page. You can also reach out on social media. Um, I want to talk about just a couple of good things that are happening downtown. Keitha alluded to the Lift Every Voice and Sing Park, which is coming, but is not yet there. Mm-hmm. Friendship Fountain finally reopened. Yes. This weekend is the Winterland concert, which is in the park at the center of the city by City Hall, James Weldon Johnson Park. So there are, you know, bright spots. And you don't think about how significant something like Friendship Fountain is until you actually go there and experience it. I went the day um, after it opened, the the morning after, and to see all the kids out there with their parents laughing, running around, enjoying the place. I'm I'm big on social media, by the way, and all over Instagram, you're seeing all these, these, these photos and videos of people with their families back out there saying how wonderful it is to live in Jacksonville. So something as small as that is, 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 is re, you know, revamping our, our areas, our, our, our friendship fountain. It made a huge difference. It kind of um, breathed a little bit of life back into the area. Made people excited and proud to be from from Jax. Yeah, I saw um, one uh, woman that I follow on social media with. She put a video and she said, "I, I get it now, friendship mm. fountain. Like I understand." And and there is a certain a you feeling know, that you get mm-hmm. going there. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, is that enough to carry the weight? I mean, mm. it, maybe it says David how important you know the civic projects are as much or more so than the you know the apartment buildings or the actual businesses themselves, but kind of a sense of place. Yeah, I think the the key to downtown, in my view, is just the Riverwalk, making it where you can live, say, in Brooklyn and get on the Riverwalk and walk downtown. Uh, they're going to be extending the Riverwalk all the way to the sports complex. There are people who walk the Riverwalk every day. They've been waiting years for that to happen. And then you'll have some connectivity there. You can go across the bridges. The idea that you can go downtown to see Friendship Fountain and then walk across the Main Street Bridge and experience the Riverwalk. That really, I think, is the key to connecting everything together and making it where, you know, the people always say in Manhattan, people walk for 
half a mile and don't even pay attention to how it's long true. they've walked <laughs> because they enjoy the walk. Yeah. And if you can walk along an enjoyable river walk and there's something up ahead that makes you want to keep going, well, that's going to connect everything I together. mean, a little shade wouldn't hurt. <laughs> shade <laughs> would hurt, yes. Well, I'm from New York City, and I can tell you, sometimes you, you don't realize because you're just rushing to get to where you're going. It's cold and, you know, <laughs> many people around, but yeah. I definitely agree. I do want to just uh, talk briefly about a switcheroo at the landing site. So that's been a little bit controversial. The chamber came out this week and said, well, we fully support a riverfront restaurant at the landing site. But that is a departure from the original award-winning design of that parcel, which initially had a playground on the waterfront and the restaurant towards the back. So how significant is that swap for people who were sold on the idea of this as a um, civic destination, Tricia? Well, I think that having a restaurant on the river is it would be pretty key to its commercial success. And I'm I, this seems to me purely a commercial decision um, when you're looking at who, what's going to draw more people and more money to the landing. It's going to be restaurant and the ability to sit and have a drink right on the water. Um, I'm, it's unclear to me why you can't have both. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, that to me is purely a commercial decision, not one that's designed to serve best serve the people of Jacksonville. I think the, there still will be a playground, but right, originally the idea was you go to bring your family and kids and you're mm-hmm. playing on the playground and you've got the fantastic view of the waterfront that makes it a playground unlike any other. Now, I think you'd still get a view of the waterfront from this playground, which would be moved to, towards the back of the park. Uh, but the idea behind the uh, the dining is that, uh, you know, love or hate the landing, there were half a dozen restaurants where you could go and get a meal, lunch or dinner, and sit outside and enjoy the river. And you can't do that anymore on that site. And so uh, there's been a real push by DIA, Downtown Investment Authority, to try and bring some riverfront dining back to people as they're walking up and down the riverfront. Um, it's maybe a risky proposition, you know. Uh, some some speakers made the point that restaurants are a really volatile business. And, uh, you know, would it be... The worst thing of all is to have an empty building <laughs> uh, with no restaurant in it, and it's just sitting there on this valuable riverfront property. Kind of why we took down the yeah, landing. Yeah, yeah, yeah between, we've had that before. <laughs> between businesses, yeah, exactly. So, uh, but uh, there, it's part of a strategy to really get a lot more waterfront dining up and down the river, which a lot of polls show that's what people really would like to see. Yeah, Trish has some key words there. What best serves the people of Jacksonville? That's really what it's all about. Maybe it's because I'm a mom of small kids, but you have to think family, I believe, when it comes to development uh, in this area, because that's a big draw for a lot of us while we're still here in Jacksonville. It's a nice place to raise families. So you have to think about that. What's going to serve the people of Jacksonville best? And if you're thinking about making sure that you have... um, facilities for people who live downtown mm-hmm. you 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 can't be all restaurants you're right i mean who's going to live downtown if there's no place to go take your kids who's going to raise a family downtown if you there's no parks nearby so i think it again it goes back to a a grand plan a grand scheme that can serve both commercial needs and the ability for the city of jacksonville the residents of jacksonville to make downtown a destination Well, I want to move on now to the question of compensation for the men who survived the Arthur Dozier School for Boys. That's in Jackson County. Um, The House Appropriations Committee this week heard testimony on a bill that would provide some financial relief um, at long last to the students who attended this Mariana school uh, where hundreds of children were mentally, physically and sexually abused. Let's hear some of that emotional testimony from this week. Our state ran a daycare that killed kids. There's 180 missing. Can we find them? You don't know them. 
but God know their names. We know they were there. You don't understand. In the Marine Corps, they taught me to defend myself. I couldn't defend myself at those. You say there are time limits on things. You putting time limits on kids that didn't even know the law. I'm not going to let Doja win. And this state and this country can't let it win. Trisha, it's just one awful story. It's been written about extensively, um, nonfiction, fiction alike. Um, and the investigation really dates back mm, no, to 2008 when uh, Charlie Crist first ordered the, you know, the allegations of that treatment, the mistreatment there be looked into. Yeah. Uh, some of these people who have testified for the bill have been testifying before uh, legislators for 16 mm -hmm. years. They have had to go and relive this through their testimony. To me, it's, it's just one of the most callous acts to not uh, recognize not only what these students went through, but the existence of generational trauma. I mean, this is not just these students. This is uh, their families. This is how they have been raised. This is something they continue to live with. And I, I just feel like it, is, it has been, the state of Florida has had a really kind of inhumane reaction to this. And maybe this is because it's in the past and we see uh, that the school has been raised and we, we think that these folks should have moved on. But gosh, I mean, I just, I just don't understand why this continues to be um, an issue, whether we should compensate these folks. Keith, this claims bill dates back to 2010, mm -hmm. um, and it's never been passed. It looks like it's on a track this year that actually could be, you know, almost unanimous support. There's the upside to things. We're finally getting somewhere, right? You mentioned Tuesday, the House uh, bill, was it 21? House Bill 21 was heard in front of the committee, so we're finally getting somewhere. We still have uh, another hearing they have to have before it actually makes it to the governor's desk, the Senate bill as well, but it looks like we're finally seeing some movement after all of this time. And it's still true because what I think about when I hear that testimony is the fact that you had these these men that had to do this multiple times. I mean, we've been reporting for almost 20 years now, so I, I, I know what it's like to sit down with a victim and have them relive their horror. It's painful, you know, for you just listening. So you can imagine what it's like for them. And these men have had to do that again and again and again and still no compensation. So it's nice to see that finally we're getting somewhere. Hopefully it, it looks like they will, you know finally get what they've been um, asking for for all this time after all these years. I would hope it would serve something as a, I mean, there's this this idea, well, what's money going to do for them? How is money going to fix things? But And money, of course, doesn't fix everything, but it certainly serves as a recognition of what they went through. And God, maybe it can serve as a deterrent. It's not like this kind of thing doesn't continue to go on. I mean, there are still parents who are desperate for help for their children, who are sending their children to places where they are being abused, physically, emotionally, sexually uh, and certainly this is not an issue that maybe this particular uh, facility is in the past, but certainly the issue is not in the past. Um, David, uh, I'm going to ask you kind of what gets a bill like this unstuck. You know, there was a time when the senator from that county, George Gaynor, who grew up near the school, fought this uh, appropriation. You know, didn't want any um, reparations for these children who are now many, many of them pretty old, many of them, you know, dying. Um, he said at the time that he didn't think that he didn't believe the allegations and it was a tough pill 
I think for people who lived near that school, where a lot of people in those towns were employed at that school, to hear these allegations and to really even to believe them. Yeah, it was one of those hiding in plain sight horror stories. Um, and I agree completely that it's really gripping just to hear people uh, talk about what it was like to go through that uh, experience. And, you know, people were killed there. You know, young men, boys were killed there and just buried in, in, uh, in some, and there's, I think it's, uh, perhaps it's a case where, uh, um, it's hard to reckon with the past. It's hard to admit that scale of, uh, of, of wrongdoing, that scale of, uh, just people being, uh, brutalized in the way that they were. And so I, I, part of it is that I think it's just hard to do that reckoning. And, and then the, um, but the financial compensation is an important part of that reckoning. Um, you know, we saw that with the uh, Japanese who were compensated because they were interred in uh, prison camps during World War II. And so there is an important aspect of bringing that, truly confronting what happened by compensating the victims of it who are getting older. And, you know, their voices are not going to be around much longer to to directly say what happened in the way that speakers like that really movingly did. Yeah, there's 55 bodies that were found in unmarked graves on this site, Keitha. And the survivors, including that gentleman, say that there's 183 children still unaccounted for. Um, I want to talk about compensation and, and the importance of that, because it's not just these victims who went through the physical abuse, you know, sexually abused. You also have their, their children, right? Because she mentioned it's generational because some of them say they're still depressed at this day. They're going through different, different issues that they have to deal with now. Their children are likely feeling that as well. So, yes, they deserve compensation because it might not solve all the problems, but it could help. You know, some haven't had the, the help that they need when it comes to, you know, psychology, whatever they need to be done um, to, to get help. So compensation is definitely something that's necessary. It's, they're, they're owed that. I'm going to say that. They, they're, they owe them that, the money to help out. You know, one thing that I, that same gentleman who spoke earlier, who, who talked to the Appropriations Committee this week, said that he's unable to have children because of what happened mm. to him at, at, at the White House, Trisha. Um, so it's not, clear, it's not clear what kind of compensation they would be entitled to, even if this bill passes. It's not really spelled out. Um, and it's hard to know what would be appropriate. Right. I think I, when I was reading about it, there's, they haven't put a number on it. The idea is to set up a, a, a tr some kind of fund, a trust fund, not a trust fund, but some kind of fund to which people could apply for funds. Uh, but back to Keith's point, it's not like these kids got out of this place where they were horribly abused in the 1960s and went straight into an excellent therapy plan, <laughs> you know, were able to figure this all out. That's just not how things worked then uh, for anyone, much less for a poor kid who's been living with abuse for 10 years. Um, yeah, I don't know what kind of compensation is appropriate either, but certainly there should be the option for them or their children to get the help that they need. And whether it's financial help or um, uh, therapeutic help, uh, they should have some assistance to live uh, a, a, a normal, a, a decent life. Um, and the, uh, as you said, Keith, it's got another stop, I believe, next Tuesday morning. The Senate's going to vote on it. Um, this, I mean, it wasn't just the abuse. There, There is also this question, I think, when it comes to um, making this right from a financial standpoint, David, is that they were also forced to do forced labor. I mean, they were required to work in fields. They were required to... Um, I mean, some have compared it to, to slavery, that they you know, were kept in this 
um, environment where they were forced to do this work. And so they were generating money for the state. Right. And so off their sweat of their backs, uh, yes, they were providing something that they should have been compensated for, um, you know, forced to work against their will, clearly. And that would be the definition of slavery. I mean, it, it, it doesn't sound from anything I've read that the the work component of this was in some sense part of the rehabilitation. It was punishment. And so, uh, so that also, I think, justifies some compensation from the state for, for what they went through and what they did. It does show how times have changed, Keith. I mean, many of the kids who were um, kept at Dozier were really just runaways, uh, sometimes truants, um, pretty small-scale stuff that they were being locked up for um, for long periods. And, you know, corporal punishment was very much a thing back then. And so even perhaps what constitutes abuse in our eyes was very much accepted. Yeah, all of it is heartbreaking when you hear these um, uh, testimonies. And I have been hearing them for at least 10 years now, you know, and I haven't, and I'm, I'm sure folks have been hearing it even longer than that, but it's, it's just tough to see, to imagine that there were people that allowed that to happen because for something like that to happen in an institution like that, it have to be multiple people saying, you know, checking it off. Yeah, go ahead. We're going to turn a blind eye to this happening. And, and as for the victims, if they can't get um, justice when it comes to people being prosecuted, then you've got to try to give them compensation some way, somehow. And if that's financial, it needs to happen. And and again, it looks like it is getting closer to, to doing so. Yeah. And to be fair, there have been multiple investigations. You know, there have been lawsuits. None of them have been successful in either holding them civil, you know, the perpetrators civilly responsible or criminally responsible. Trisha, this is not there's not been an avenue for these victims. No. And this is, to me, very recognizant of what's happening with uh, the the Native American children who were taken from their homes and kept for years against their will, suffering also physical abuse, cultural abuse, uh, sexual abuse, and are seeking compensation now. There hasn't been an avenue through which they can say, um, hey, you need to help us now because you basically ruined our lives. Mm. And it, it just seems fair and just, and it, it, it just continues to surprise me that uh, that there are people who fight against it because the, the abuse is not... It's not ethereal. It's not. It's not um, something that is controversial. It it happened. There's been proof that it happened. And uh, I don't know how you can look at these older men or, or and some of, and their families and say it it might not have been that bad. I, mm. I just don't understand how you can do that. And David, I think it also shows the evolving conversation that we're having culturally as a society about how we talk about things. Because I recall when these allegations first came out, and we were all reporting on the newness of it. The sexual abuse was initially not really talked about. I mean, we've come a long, long way where now that is a central focus uh, where these victims are recounting what happened to them in that respect as well. Right. Well, I think part of it may be the scandals in the Catholic Church uh, certainly surfaced that in terms of uh, of uh, sort of pulling back the curtain on that that was something that was happening there. And so perhaps to that extent, there's more of a willingness to to uh, talk about it, but I'm sure it's still, as a victim of it, it's still um, difficult to talk about that. And so to the extent that that's something that people are able to put out there on the public record, because it should be on the public record, uh, that is probably a good, well, it is a good thing that that for the historical record to show that. And, uh, and perhaps that is changing. Now, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, if, if there was a similar scandal that happens, it's happening right now somewhere, uh, are there victims who are unwilling to come forward uh, because of the sexual to report sexual assault? I think there's still 
difficult for people to come forward with that because they feel like they're their fault somehow or uh, you know I'm to blame or just the shame of it is difficult to to overcome mm-hmm. particularly men mm-hmm. absolutely well, we're talking about the top stories of the week with our panel of journalists, and you are welcome to join our conversation. You can give a call at 904-549-2937. You can email us at firstcoastconnect at wjct.org, and you can message us on Facebook, Instagram, or you can tag us on X at FCC on Air. Um, I want to move on now to opening statements Wednesday in the largest fraud case in Jacksonville history. Uh, the executive's Ryan Wanamaker and Aaron Zahn are accused of masterminding a plot to privatize JEA and then skim profits through a benefit plan that they hatched. Um, David, I was there with you in court for yeah. those opening statements, um, and you're going to, you've got a tough month ahead. Yeah, they're talking about several weeks of testimony. I think there were the, uh, the prosecution talking about 30 witnesses they're going to call. And uh, it's a white collar crime case. So the jurors are really seeing. Lots of memos, lots of videos. It's a real methodical case. Uh, I was thinking that if you just walked in off the street into that courthouse, you might end, what's the what's the fuss about? You know, is this the biggest scandal that rocked Jacksonville in recent years? But it's going to be that one of those cases where they're really going to build a methodical case. And all along, the defense attorneys for Aaron Zahn and Ryan Wanamaker are going to try and poke holes in in the in the testimony and the witnesses. Uh, and I think it's going to be uh, fascinating to see how these jurors come down because I think both sides can can put a narrative out there for the jurors to hang a hat on in terms of whether they come back with a guilty or acquittal. And I thought it was interesting um, as we're watching the arguments for both. So there's two juries, there's two defendants. They're telling very different stories about what happened, David. It's not uh, they will ask one jury to leave the room and present their side, um, which often really contradicts what the other attorney has said happened. Right. Well, yeah, I think there are cases where uh, Aaron Zahn, the former CEO, and Ryan Wanamaker, the, the former chief financial officer, uh, are not on the same page in terms of what the best strategy is for them to convince the jury. And each has a, his his own jury that he has to convince because they're going to hear the testimony together, both jurors. Then they're going to go separately in the jury room where that's where the where they'll deliberate on what they've heard. So that's a really interesting dynamic that's going on there in terms of how they'll handle, say, cross-examination, call their own witnesses. Uh, so, And there may be some times where one jury will leave and the other jury will stay during some portions of the trial, not a lot of it. Uh, but, yeah, it's a fascinating dynamic and how that's going to play out when they come to decision time. Trisha. Yeah, the, the jury switching thing is bizarre, and I, I think it contributes to the really difficult job that media have in this case, which is, A, trying to explain to their readers and watchers this really complicated case and trying to make them care about what appears to be just another case of corporate greed. <clears throat> and even though it's a city-owned utility, it just has that stench about it, you know, more rich people making more millions of dollars. and. So I think I, I'm interested in what the feedback that you all have gotten with your coverage of this, because I, I find it to be a really difficult case to explain the nuances of. I mean, it's a problem that prosecutors are also having. You know, I will say, having watched that opening statement from Tyson Duva, the lead prosecutor in the case, it's a lot. There's so many lawyers. There's so many players. There's so many 
spreadsheets that they have to look at. There's so many firms that were involved. Um, one of the defense attorneys even kind of did like a, these are the people and put up the pictures of everybody. These are the people you're going to be, you know, hearing about. Here's Melissa Dykes. Here's, you know, Jay Stowe. So trying to introduce this massive cast of characters, Keitha, mm-hmm. um, how are you handling it? it? It is a lot, but I've, I've got to tell you, so Jeannie Blaylock has been um, our, our main anchor for First Coast News. She has been out there um, in the courtroom as well, covering this in the evening, as long as Renata, well, uh, along with Renata Gregorio. And I I like the fact that we are getting to the, the crux, the heart of this to me, the people, the people, the people affected. Because you think about it, what was on the table, 30% of the workforce for JEA possibly losing their jobs. So to me, I'm thinking, well, what were these people going through? Imagine walking into your job day in and day out, like, am I going to have a job, a paycheck, to, you know, what I need to, pay, to feed my family? And that's really what it was all about, because this alleged greed from these people trying to get millions of dollars and people are just trying to collect their paychecks, wondering, you know, is this going to happen? Is JA going to be sold? Am I going to be able to support my family? So to me, that's the heart of this is who was going to be affected and, and how exactly. Um, and that's what we've been seeing a lot of our coverage kind of like geared towards what who's affected by this mainly. And it's about the people, in my opinion. And the uh, the case has been, you know, has included some of that. Um, David, the lead prosecutor, has, you know, kind of started off his uh, presentation talking about, you know, when the first st- streetlight was installed and by JEA and kind of this long history. And then describing Aaron Zahn as just sort of parachuting in, taking this great company, this great utility and all of its wealth and then trying to appropriate it. Right. I think that was really interesting how they kind of set this up in the context of this utility that goes back to the 19th century and was built by the hard work of linemen and executives. And, and uh, they really did get to that people aspect uh, in terms of uh, the uh, the utility itself. And then this idea that you had this uh, newcomer come in and decide to sort of uh, say one thing in public while doing another thing in private and basically try to capitalize on this wealth that others had built on behalf of the people of the city of Jacksonville. You know, he made the comparison of somebody who starts a business in a garage and builds it from scratch and then goes out and sells it compared to, say, coming in and somebody else has done all the hard work and just sort of finding a way, an angle to make yourself rich off it. And that's the case that they're going to make over and over again, I think, to this jury. Yeah, I think he said that, you know, you build your own company, that's your thing. But this wasn't Aaron Zahn's thing right. to, to come in and, and to claim. Um, so there's a lot of uh, secrecy alleged in this, Trisha. Um, these two men are accused of using password-protected thumb drives, encrypted messaging, erasable whiteboards, um, and then hand-delivering documents to avoid them being shared. Um, it is, nonetheless, I mean, it is a difficult case to build. There is no... Nothing was ever taken. Um, this was this plan, whatever it was, the sale and the the planned uh, the the benefit plan never was approved. Um, and in fact, you know, the city pulled the plug. JEA itself pulled the plug. So it's it's hard to tell a jury that a crime was committed. It, it, it's hard to prove. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like you know, you arrest somebody for um, trying to kill somebody, but the person never got killed, and so it's like, well, you know, no harm done. <laughs> and yeah, I think you're you're absolutely right, especially when it comes to just just money. Um, you're looking at this crime like, well, they they got caught, nothing ever happened. He doesn't have a job anymore. Let's just move along. Uh, and the secrecy doesn't help, and the complicated nature of this doesn't help at all. Like you were referring to all of the. Um, the memos and the secrecy, the stories, I think, going back to Keith, the story, telling telling uh, people exactly 
who is going to be affected and how is probably the key for the prosecutors. But also I go back to the Jacksonville public. I mean, the key to getting Jacksonville residents to understand what the scope of what almost happened, I think, is pretty key, not just in for this particular case, but for them understanding the importance of them being aware of what's going on in their city and what what could happen to their uh, the public entities. I've got to tell you, I'm paying so close to so much cl- close so closely attention to this because I want to see exactly what's going to happen. I want the truth to finally come out. It feels like for years we've been hearing, you know, uh, speculation and assumptions. Let's see what really happened behind closed doors. So I, I just want to see the truth come out. Hopefully, I mean, a lot of people, Keitha, are curious about you know what role the mayor, the former mayor, played or his um, minions, and you know their names have come up in in testimony, but. The prosecutor, I think, rather deliberately is kind of steering the conversation away from getting too far into the weeds in terms of, you know, anything that isn't material to this case. And so it may be that people with that curiosity won't be satisfied in terms of getting the answers about, you know, what kind of pressures were applied, what the end game really was. Or maybe they will. We don't know what's going to happen on that witness stand. We're talking about 30 plus witnesses. Was that the number that you had? Mm-hmm. I think we're going to find out a lot and I am, I'm waiting for it. We'll I mean, see. yeah, I mean, some of it, you know, does come out. I know that Paul McElroy testified, he was the former CEO who was eventually replaced by Aaron Zahn and he made clear he was told, you know, Aaron Zahn was being put in there to facilitate a sale of JEA. He was being put in by the mayor to affect a sale of JEA. And that was a pretty... Um, stark depiction of, you know, the, the the whole scenario. Right, yeah, and we kind of uh, had reported on it in broader terms, but it was really explicit, you know, we'll make life, you're, we'll find ways to make life hard for you if you don't step down. So it was definitely a forced ouster. Um, you know, I think in terms of uh, some of the discussion about how to relate it to people, I mean, the prosecution's case is that the this was a scheme to steal millions of dollars from you, the taxpayers of Jacksonville. That's the connection they're trying to make to this jury. Or at least the ratepayers. Uh, yeah, this, you know, the, this, there's, if there was a sale, all this money should have gone to the city of Jacksonville. And these two uh, executives were trying to take steal. That's the word they used, money that taxpayers should have had. And it is a tough case to make because I think the prosecution's case will be, even if they never actually put this plan into effect, uh, they made, they hatched it, they advanced it, they operated in secrecy to move it forward, and that's all the jury needs to know to be able to return a conviction. And then the defense is going to argue over and over again, well, yeah, they explored a plan, but they scrapped it, they killed it. Aaron Zahn himself said, we're not going forward on it. How can you convict a guy who decided on his own not to move forward? We've got a call, Linda in Mandarin. Good morning, Linda. Welcome to First Coast Connect. Good morning. Uh, I'm I might be a bit confused, but I would just ask uh, the city of Jacksonville if we've ever looked at a good crime story, if we've ever read a suspense novel, the prosecution can make the case. You don't, how many cases have we had of, of somebody? This is a conspiracy, and we've had conspiracies to commit murder. Nobody died, but they still got convicted for the conspiracy to attempt to commit murder. They were attempting to commit the murder of JEA and enrich themselves in the uh, offing. In addition, my understanding is it was the city auditor. It wasn't like, oh, Aaron Zahn woke up one morning and decided to pull the plug. The city auditor saw this enrichment plan and 
yelled fire. Mm -hmm. It was a city employee that really turned this case. It wasn't because Aaron Zahn woke up one morning and thought, oh, let me do better than I'm doing. No, let's prosecute them for the attempted conspiracy to steal the money from JEA. And let's pull the former mayor into it because he facilitated. Thank you. Thanks, Linda. Um, Tricia, it is sort of a little bit of a revenge of the nerds story because it was, you know, the CPAs that kind of came to the rescue, uncovered, you know, this plan, this scheme to, uh, you know, perhaps take the profits from the sale and put it in the pockets of executives. Yeah, it's kind of like what David was saying when Aaron, Aaron Zahn and what the caller said, he didn't just suddenly have a crisis of conscience. I mean, it was like um, the the public workers looked at this plan and said, oh, are you kidding? And Aaron Zahn was like, yeah, actually, I'm kidding. <laughs> We're not going to do this. You know, So it totally was the the revenge of the of the bean counters who looked at the plan and said, what? No, this is not going to work. Um, and thank goodness for them. But it really, really did come close to happening, Keitha. And I think that that's something worth remembering. I mean, this was a plan that had all the and I thought it was interesting, too, because the attorneys for the defendants were saying, you know, it had to go through all of these stages. It would have to go through the voters. It would need city council approval. It would need state approval um, and listed on a piece of white paper all of these steps that would have had to, you know, things that lights had to turn green before this could be accomplished. But the reality was many, many of those had already happened and things like voter approval, you know, that was going to be sweetened with with maybe, you know, as much as two thousand dollars per ratepayer in terms of rebates, benefits that they would get in the event of a sale. And so a public vote perhaps wasn't as uh, high a wall to scale as it sounds. Yeah. Yeah. The bottom line is it got close, uh, dangerously close, uh, close to where it was scary for those who, who of us who sit back and think like, oh, my gosh, that could have happened. But uh, again, you, you have you have two sides to every tale, right? Because there are those who say this could have benefited Jacksonville, the, the money um, that we would have gained if it was sold. And those who say on the other side, there are a lot of implications that have, could have been very dangerous to the city as well. So there are both sides to it. But I, I recently heard an interview with a councilman who said, so we know it, um, December of 2019, uh, this was dead in the water, right? What's going to happen? And the councilman said uh, that was our Christmas present to Jacksonville. So this was interesting. Again, two sides to the, the coin, how some people felt like relieved that did not happen. And, and you know, look at where we are now. Hopefully we'll find out exactly what did happen. I want to move on now to a topic. Uh, Clay County is trashing curbside recycling starting October 1st. They've decided that it's not worth it. Um, it's not going to save anybody any money, though, David. They're actually going to be increasing their trash hauling. Costs 15 percent. So no more recycling, but it's going to cost more. What's happening? You know, they they stopped recycling back during uh, uh, kind of in the pandemic and about the same time Jacksonville stopped it. And there was a big hue and cry in Jacksonville to bring it back. I don't think that ever really happened in Clay County. And maybe it's just because it's more dispersed. Uh, people spread over a, a more of the a larger area. But uh, certainly the county commission was not in any hurry to bring back curbside recycling. Eventually they did. And now I guess they've decided that not enough people do it. And rather than launch a massive education plan to get more people to do it, they've just decided it's not fair to charge everybody else for the cost of recycling when there's not a big number of people who are doing it. Um, you know, uh, whatever uh, doesn't get recycling ends up somewhere, you know, it's going to a landfill. And that means that landfill, uh, which I think they use Jacksonville's landfill, I'm not 100% certain of that, uh, it's going to fill up faster. So there's a price to pay 
uh, down the road one way or the other on this particular uh, decision they're making. Trisha, I just want to point out, too, there was a report that just came out from the Center for Climate Integrity that says that for the last 30 years, plastic producers have known that recycling is not economically or technically feasible. It just was never really designed to be something that worked. Yeah, I'm this is I'm very sad about this. <laughs> I've been reading about it because I'm an, an obsessive um, recycler. And even though I've been reading all about this, I'm, I'm just kind of heartbroken. I feel like we have been deceived. Uh, six to nine percent, I believe, is the estimate. Six to nine percent of the materials that we think we're recycling uh, gets recycled. And I can see how a county like Clay County might look at that and say, yeah, it's hardly worth it. I mean, why should, if, if only six percent is being recycling, recycled, it doesn't really seem worth it. Um, I think probably what we have to do is start uh, looking more at the reduction of single-use plastics, but that's a long-term project. Well, great conversation, y'all. It's time for our lightning round. (laughs) I'm going to start with you, Trisha, because you got the jam happening. (laughs) Well, a UCF student uh, continues to receive cease and desist orders from Taylor Swift because he is using public records to track Taylor Swift's private jet. Um, She says he's stalking her. He says, no, I just want to point out that her carbon footprint is enormous, and I want people to know how much she and Elon Musk, for that matter, are um, are using in fuel fossil fuels and the duplicitous nature of their uh, of their integrity. Uh huh. I think I thought I heard that she was going to dis dis uh, avail herself of the get rid of the the, the jet, but yeah. Maybe we'll and he said, "Look what end. you made me do." <laughs> David, what you got cooking? So the state legislature is wrapping up in the next few weeks. One bill to watch is there's a tax bill in the House that would require or force the city of Jacksonville to have another voter referendum on the half-cent sales tax that was approved in 2016 to be able to pay down pension debt. So it's sort of like Groundhog Day. What's what's old is new and uh, nothing new under the sun. I don't think it's going to get through the full legislature, but there's always crazy stuff to watch in these final two weeks. Keitha. Vivid Hughes, Stories of Black History airs next week, Thursday, the 29th at 7.30 on ABC 25. We pair local artists with history makers uh, such as Nathaniel Glover, Norma Solomon White. They share the stories of uh, different history, historic, uh, historical relevance here in Jacksonville. This one in particular is about the Stanton School, which we know uh, was the first black school in the state of Florida, state's first school in the state of Florida for black children. So they're going to delve into that. And it's just a beautiful piece that we get to do. 30 minutes long, so tune in if you can. Uh, And I just want to say that a couple of uh, guests that we had featured this week who had their house bombed by the Klan are going to be recognized today by City Council President Ron Salem. So uh, I think a nice development there at long last. Thanks, all of you, for being here. Up next, JME contributor Hurley Winkler talks songwriting school with Caroline Rose. Wayne Hogan of the Terrell Hogan Personal Injury and Wrongful Death Law Firm. Serious injury cases are complex, and civil trial attorneys present the evidence juries need to see and hear. More at waynehogan.law. The Florida Forum Speaker Series, benefiting Wolfson Children's Hospital, welcomes retired four-star Admiral James Stavridis. The international security expert is currently vice chair and managing director of the Carlisle Group and a best-selling author. Information at thefloridaforum.com or 202-2886. Is IVF legal? 
Families in Alabama have been left in limbo when the state Supreme Court under pressure. A fertilized egg in a freezer and in a fertility clinic is not the same as a born child. Also on the roundup, the GOP's star Hunter Biden witness is charged with lying and with being linked to Russia. And Nikki Haley says South Carolinians deserve more than a Soviet-style primary. That's next time on 1A. Today, starting at 10 on WJCT News 89.9. The first time I ever heard a song by Caroline Rose, I thought, wait a minute, is this my new anthem? To me, Caroline's music was stoic and earwormy, but on their latest record, The Art of Forgetting, they took a turn toward the introspective. And adding for weeks, I wish I could collect all of the subtle rejections, wrap them all up in a bow. To say thank you, nice to know you. I loved all of our time. Maybe I'll see you down the But Caroline says that deep down, they're the same songwriter. How, yeah, I haven't really changed. I mean, my obviously, I, I feel like I'm kind of a bit of a explorer when it comes to, you know, genres and stuff. I don't really adhere to, like, one genre. You're listening to Songwriting School, where we talk with musicians about how they write their songs. I'm Hurley Winkler. Here's my conversation with Caroline Rose, who will be performing in Jacksonville at the Winterland Six Festival in James Weldon Johnson Park, on Saturday, February 24th. Why don't we start by thinking back to your origins as a songwriter? What do you remember about writing your first songs? My first song ever was called Out of Time, and it was sort of like an existential song about what we do with our time. And to be honest, I still think about this all the time. Like, what do I do with all my time <laughs> while I'm alive? So it sounds like you've been pretty true to your origins as a songwriter then. But yeah, I'm definitely, I have the same brain, that's for sure. In a dream, there's someone I hate. A smile creeps across my face as they burn at the stake. So these days, if you had to pinpoint one thing that kicks off the process of writing a song, what would it be? I think probably more than anything, just having free time to do it. And that could be as simple as just walking to the grocery store and not being on my phone, just walking and, you know, living and kind of allowing my brain to run in whatever direction it wants to. So I feel like dis distractions are the, the number one reason why people aren't more creative or just making things all the time. I know you're such a busy artist, though, and it seems like it might be hard to find those pockets of time for uninterrupted brain space. How do you ensure that you work that time into your busy schedule? I think if I get even one moment a day to be creative, and sometimes that could be even just factoring in like, oh, instead of driving to this place, I'm going to walk or ride my bike. So it frees up my mind to wander a bit, especially when I'm walking. I just, you know, I don't have anything to do. So I write a lot of songs when I'm, I like go out for walks or the other day I was making a cup of coffee and one just popped in and, you know, I was like, Oh, got to stop what I'm doing and write this down. Cause, um, 
you know, if you forget the idea, then <laughs> it's a wasted opportunity, I guess. artists would you say have influenced your songwriting most? Yeah, I'd say, you know, the cla- the classic songwriters will always kind of be deeply embedded in my in my soul. You know, the sort of like troubadours, Hank Williams. Yeah, that lonesome whippoorwill He sounds too blue to fly but then I, I have this whole other side of me that I just, I really like sonic explorers or, or people who are a little more like funny and loose. And a lot of my favorite bands like never adhered to a particular style. Tom Waits, he, he really crafted his own path. probably my biggest influence actually your songwriting has evolved so much through the years moving into more vulnerable territory on your latest record the art of forgetting have there been any fears and doubts you've had to overcome by taking your vulnerabilities and pouring them into your lyrics it was difficult to tour it at first uh, and sing these really painful songs like over and over but it actually did help heal me Wow. What what do you think that is about having to face an audience, sing these extremely vulnerable songs over and over again? What do you think in that was healing about that? Well, you know, a lot of people really responded to the music in such a positive way. That's your dream is to write something really honest and share it with people and then have people respond with something equally as powerful of, of how it moved them. And it's kind of, the miracle of making art really that you can have connections with people you've never met through something that you experienced and then translated into something beautiful and consumable So excited to have you back here in Jacksonville at Winterland very soon. Thanks for coming on to talk with me today, Caroline. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's good questions. I appreciate it. Don't miss Caroline Rose live in Jacksonville at the Winterland Six Festival in James Weldon Johnson Park on Saturday, February 24th. For festival information and more, head on over to jacksmusic.org slash calendar. Winterland Festival tomorrow. Don't miss it. And that's our own Hurley Winkler. Thanks so much for that segment. We welcome your feedback, comments, or suggested topics. Just email firstcoastconnect at wjct.org. Today's program will be rebroadcast at 8 o'clock, and all of our shows are archived at wjct.org and on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget to listen Saturday at 4 when neurologist Dr. Joe Servin and his panel of medical experts discuss the biggest medical headlines of the month. 
Join us again Monday when we discuss a JEA uh, latest and the rights to kill bears. I'm Ann Schindler. You've been listening to First Coast Connect on WJCT News 89.9. Support for First Coast Connect is provided by Baptist Health and the North Florida TPO.